The Deseret Gym was built in Salt Lake City, Utah in the early 20th century. It was completed in 1910 and located where the central office building of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints now stands, on the block directly to the east of the Salt Lake Temple. It was 90 feet wide, 150 feet long, and three stories high. It had a barber shop, six standard bowling lanes, a handball room, a private exercise room, two rooms for visiting teams, 23 private dressing rooms, a locker room complete with 1,300 steel lockers, and a swimming pool area with 12 showers and a washroom. The floor in the main room was made of maple wood and allowed it to be used as a dance hall. The third floor served as a large spectator gallery. Several gymnastics events, weightlifting competitions, handball events, and basketball tournaments would be held there over the decades that would follow. In 1935, the church saw a need among the young men and boys in the area to have more structure in their lives and learn more skills. The offerings of the gym would be expanded to include band and orchestra instruction, woodworking courses, and outdoor excursions to Camp Saratoga near Utah Lake in Utah County. Girls could enroll in classes teaching first aid, dressmaking, tennis, swimming, and dancing. In the summer of 1935, the gym and the Lion House on the same block but a few hundred feet to the south, cooperated to teach practical homemaking arts. By the 1950s, the building began to show its age, and the needs of the community were expanding rapidly. The building was torn down in 1965. The 28-story church office building now stands at the same location where the old gym once stood. The church office building was completed in the early 70s and officially dedicated on July 24, 1975. In the mid-60s, when the old Deseret Gym was torn down, a new one was built directly north of the Salt Lake Temple at the corner of North Temple and Main. For those of you who know the city, it's where the Conference Center for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, dedicated in the year 2000, now sits. But on Wednesday, October 16, 1985, a blue Toyota Supra pulled up on the west side of Main Street next to the Deseret Gym. Moments later, a pipe bomb went off in the Toyota causing injury, but not killing its occupant. The noise of the bomb, which happened only a block from the church office building, could be felt far and wide throughout downtown Salt Lake. But that bomb was only the tip of the iceberg, only a piece in a chain reaction. Welcome to Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West. This is the story of Mark Hoffman and the White Salamander murders. church office building on the block between State Street and Main Street and between North and South Temple once commanded the Salt Lake City skyline. It can still be seen from miles around to be sure, but since the addition of the Wells Fargo Center in 1998, as well as several new residential condo and apartment buildings, and 111 South Main which houses the Eccles Theater, the church office building blends in much more than it once did. From the top floors, it's possible to see the spot where a pipe bomb blew Mark Hoffman out of his car on a warm afternoon in October 1985. Looking the other direction, it's possible to see the building where a similar bomb had killed Steve Christensen on the sixth floor of the Judge Building the previous day. The Judge Building is located at 8 East Broadway in downtown Salt Lake. 
In the hours following the bombings, church leaders were forced to confront an unpleasant truth. They had been engaged in negotiations with both men just prior to the bombings. Money had changed hands. Controversial church documents were to be transferred to the church archives. Two people were dead. Steve Christensen, killed by a bond left at his office, and Kathy Sheets, killed at her home in Holiday as she picked up a package meant for her husband, Gary. A third individual, Mark Hoffman, was still alive and was in LDS hospital. And the documents, if they ever existed, had disappeared. From the church headquarters, Elder Dallin H. Oaks, a member of the Council of the Twelve Apostles for the Church since April of 1984, contacted the police. Oaks told them what he knew, that Christensen and Hoffman had been scheduled to deliver a set of historical papers known as the McClellan Collection on the day the bombs began to go off that the church had arranged a $185,000 bank loan to Hoffman to purchase the collection, that the loan had not been repaid. Everything else was a mystery. Outside the church offices, Salt Lake City was unnerved. Normally, this is not a city of mean streets. The bombings changed that, at least temporarily. Several document dealers left town, fearing for their lives. The area's bomb squads received hundreds of calls about suspicious packages so many calls that several of the squad's sniffer dogs succumbed to exhaustion. A parcel delivery man was chased and beaten when he left a package wrapped in brown paper on a porch. The McClellan Collection was a collection of journals written by William McClellan, an early apostle in the LDS Church. Even though Hoffman's collection was fictional and he was a master forger, there was a William McClellan who did keep journals and notebooks. McClellan joined the Mormons in 1831 and kept a journal almost from the beginning. He was an original member of the church's Quorum of the Twelve Apostles, but was excommunicated in 1838. After he left the church, he tried unsuccessfully to persuade David Whitmer, one of the three witnesses of the Book of Mormon, to take leadership of a new church, more to McClellan's liking. Whitmer refused. McClellan became an outspoken critic of the LDS Church and, to a lesser extent, the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, now the Community of Christ. He wrote his beliefs and recollections in several notebooks. Those records were given to a family friend, John Trauber, after McClellan died in 1883. That friend sold some of them 25 years later for $50 to the LDS Church. They were forgotten until after Hoffman's arrest in 1985. Some of McClellan's real papers were discovered in Texas, and soon after that the items sold to the LDS Church in 1908 were found. There was a real McClellan collection after all. But Hoffman had gotten in over his head when he tried to create and sell a McClellan collection of his own. The bombings were the most sensational crimes in recent memory. Two detectives were placed in charge, Ken Farnsworth and Jim Bell. Within 24 hours they found themselves embroiled in a debate with other law enforcement agencies that would continue for months. The friction started when Bell returned from a hospital interview with Mark Hoffman. Bell had never heard of the McClellan collection. He had simply wanted to talk to Hoffman as a victim. Hoffman, in fact, was in remarkably good condition for a man who had just had a pipe bomb explode in his face. A kneecap was blown off, an eardrum was ruptured, and numerous small wounds were inflicted, but he was conscious and willing to talk. He told Bell the bomb had gone off as he was heading to a meeting. There were witnesses that day that supposedly saw him exiting the McCune mansion further up the street with a package in his hand. 
He also had a meeting scheduled that day at church headquarters. He had opened the door of the Toyota sports car and a package fell from the seat to the floorboard. When he reached for it, the package had exploded. But the Hoffman account turned out to be less than accurate. Back at the scene, Bell was told by the bomb squad that the package could not have fallen to the floor. Analysis of the car's remains showed that the bomb had exploded in the front seat. The evidence also indicated that Hoffman must have been inside the car when the bomb went off, not climbing in. A small discrepancy, but for Bell and the other city detectives, it was intriguing. Why would Hoffman lie about a detail like that? When the detectives learned about the missing McClellan collection, they were even more interested. They had salvaged a charred sheet of ancient papyrus from the car. It appeared to have Egyptian hieroglyphics written on it. Was this part of the rumored collection? And in the car trunk, the detectives found a section of galvanized pipe, very much like the pipe used in the bombs. At some point that afternoon, Hoffman ceased to be a victim in the detectives' minds and became a suspect. But their suspicions about Hoffman were met with disbelief by some investigators at the county attorney's office and the FBI. Many believed the city's detectives were foolishly mistaken. The real perpetrators, they were convinced, would be found somewhere else. The main competing theory held that the killers were disgruntled investors who had lost money by investing with Stephen Christensen and his partner Gary Sheets. In fact, on the day of the bombings, Gary Sheets held up a computer list of all investors in his firm and told investigators, here are your suspects. The debate over these theories threatened at times to turn the law enforcement agencies into divided camps. Several weeks into the case, the city detectives assembled in the Salt Lake County Attorney's Office to make a case against Hoffman. By this time, there was more evidence. They had an eyewitness who could swear he saw Hoffman carrying a package into the office building where Christensen died. The discovery of a high school letterman's jacket from Olympus High School in Hoffman's house that had been described by the eyewitness. The Salt Lake Police Department's indoor firing range had become a temporary evidence room. It was a spooky scene. In hosing down Hoffman's car, the fire department had soaked every piece of paper inside. Now hundreds of documents and pieces of documents hung from clips, drying in the air. A lot of documents for one man, Bell thought. But then Hoffman was a documents dealer. Why shouldn't he have a lot? There was an essential ingredient missing, the motive to commit murder. Why would a respected documents dealer want to kill his colleagues? Bell and other detectives didn't know. Until they did, there was no case. George Throckmorton worked for the Utah Attorney General's office as its documents expert. He wondered why the police seemed willing to accept the Hoffman documents at face value. Throckmorton was a devoted Mormon and was more than casually interested in the Salamander letter, which was supposedly a document that Hoffman had come up with. It was a letter supposedly written by Martin Harris, one of the three witnesses to the Book of Mormon, a key book of scripture to the Latter-day Saints, to W.W. Phelps, an early convert in the Latter-day Saint movement. According to the letter, when Smith dug up the plates, a white salamander appeared which transformed itself into a spirit that refused to give Smith the plates unless his older brother, Alvin Smith, was also present. This would have been very difficult as Alvin was dead at the time of the alleged appearance. He was buried in the Palmyra City Cemetery. This reference may have been an attempt by Hoffman to associate the recovery of the gold plates to a rumor that Alvin's grave was dug up by Smith's family to use Alvin's remains in a magical ceremony. Hoffman's use of a salamander drew upon legends about certain animals having supernatural powers. Hoffman may have been inspired by the early anti-Mormon book, 
Mormonism Unveiled from 1834, which claimed that a toad-like animal was rumored to have appeared to Smith in conjunction with the recovery of the plates. The letter was initially deemed authentic by experienced document examiners. However, this conclusion was reached by using Mark Hoffman's previous forgeries as comparisons to the Salamander letter. When examined against authentic letters written by Martin Harris, the forgery was discovered. Since Throckmorton was the only qualified documents examiner in Utah, he expected a call from the county attorney's office or the Salt Lake Police Department about the Hoffman case. It never came. Instead, he was contacted by a professor of church history at BYU. Dean Jesse was worried a little. He was the man who had certified the handwriting on many of Hoffman's documents. Jesse suggested that he bring Throckmorton a copy of the Salamander letter and the reports from the technical examination just to check it over. The reports revealed what Throckmorton expected. The letter had not been dated. The experts had merely tested the two major components of the letter, the paper and the ink. The salamander letter had been written on 100% rag paper. The ink was an iron galatonic composition. Both were materials used in the 19th century, but that was all that the tests established. Hoffman could have written the salamander letter on a sheet of old paper with a formulation of iron galatonic ink. That evening, Throckmorton called William Flynn, an old friend and a document examiner from the state of Arizona. What's your religion, Throckmorton asked. Flynn said he was a non-practicing Catholic. Throckmorton knew he needed a partner to do his investigating. Within days, the two men had set up a small documents laboratory, complete with microscopes and testing machines, inside the church's archives. Next to their makeshift laboratory was one of the most guarded sanctums of the Mormon church, the archival vault. It was the central repository of the church's past. The original manuscript of the Book of Mormon was kept there. The letters of Prophet Joseph Smith were kept there, and most of the Hoffman documents were kept there. Through their investigations and over time, they found that indeed Hoffman was a genius forger, but he had made mistakes along the way. By early December, Hoffman was out of the hospital and the police department needed to establish a connection between Hoffman and the pipe bombs. There wasn't enough evidence yet to convince a jury. Explosive experts had learned that the bombs had been filled with black powder and triggered by mercury switches. Several weeks earlier, an investigator had walked into the police department and dropped the switches and connectors on a desk. Here are the bomb parts, he said. They were bought at Radio Shack. That was fine, but how could they prove that Hoffman had bought those same parts at a Radio Shack? They quickly discovered that Radio Shack used an elaborate receipt system. Every customer, whether cash or charge, is asked to fill out a form that includes his name and address. They figured that Hoffman probably used an alias. During a search of Hoffman's house, the detectives had found an envelope that contained the name Mike Hansen. In the wild hope that Hoffman had used the same name at Radio Shack, the investigators began sifting through the receipts. There were tens of thousands of receipts. There were Radio Shacks all over the Salt Lake Valley. Nothing was computerized. Every receipt was a separate piece of paper. One by one, they started. Detectives would finish lunch early and run over to the closest radio shack to whip through a couple thousand receipts. A squad of rookies at the police department was assigned to full-time radio shack duty. It was like counting the corn kennels in a grain silo. Days passed. The search turned up nothing. Then one Saturday, a rookie volunteered to rescan several boxes of receipts. One of the detectives had a hunch about this batch. And there it was, a Mike Hansen receipt 
for mercury switches. There had also been a book seized from Hoffman's house during one of the searches, Great Forgers and Famous Fakes by Charles Hamilton, a New York documents expert. The police got a copy in Phoenix and thumbed through the pages. In the back of the volume was the page he had been hoping to find. It was a formula for 19th century iron galatonic ink. The pieces of the puzzle were slowly coming together. Back in their investigation, Throckmorton and Flynn found other signs of forgeries as they studied the Hoffman documents. Under ultraviolet light, some documents showed a telltale feathering effect, a running of the ink that suggests that the sheets had been hung to dry. Other tests indicated that more than one ink had been used on some papers. But after the cracking, they were sure Flynn and Throckmorton had found a master forger, so good that half dozen of the best experts in the country had been fooled. They had also found a motive for murder. In Salt Lake, the pile of Hoffman documents kept growing at police headquarters. Ken Farnsworth, the detective in charge of the document investigation, had begun with one set of documents, the Egyptian papyri that were supposedly part of the McClellan collection. By the time the two documents examiners discovered the forgeries, Farnsworth and the other investigators had collected a small universe of documents from Hoffman's clients. There were Mormon letters, old Bibles, hymn books, Mormon currency, 19th century contracts, books of Mormon in English, books of Mormon in foreign languages, frontier immigrant guides, and ecclesiastical blessings, one of which was supposedly a blessing by Joseph Smith Jr. to his son, Joseph Smith III, naming him as his successor as president and prophet seer and revelator. That document was later proven to be forged as well. The Oath of a Freeman, which Hoffman had offered to the Library of Congress for $1.5 million, remained in New York with Hoffman's agents. Other Hoffman agents produced a second copy of the oath, along with promissory notes signed by Frontier Scout Jim Bridger, a letter by Betsy Ross, a photograph of Al Capone with his signature, an autographed copy of Jack London's Call of the Wild, in the 10 months before the bombings, the detectives calculated that Hoffman consummated deals worth $944,000. One by one, Flynn and Throckmorton tested the documents. They had a standard now. They looked for the cracking. They looked for the feathering effect around words. Over a two-month period, the men examined more than 600 documents, both Hoffman's and non-Hoffman's. They tested the Anton transcript that Hoffman had brought to the archivist at Utah State University with the pages stuck together. It was a forgery. They tested the Lucy Max Smith letter, the earliest known Mormon document which Hoffman had sold to Brent Ashworth, thereby making Ashworth a famous Mormon. It was a forgery. They tested the Joseph Smith letter discussing the prophet's money digging activities. It was a forgery. And they tested the Salamander letter. It was a forgery. Every important document that Hoffman had ever produced, the faith promoting documents and the church threatening documents, they were all forgeries. The only remaining question involved the first oath of a freeman. Hoffman's New York agents successfully resisted a subpoena ordering them to deliver the oath for examination. In the investigators' minds, the incredible number of forgeries answered many questions. It explained the terrible pressure squeezing Hoffman in the final weeks before the bombings. The collector had simply let the fraud get away from him. He had promised documents, the McClellan collection mainly, that he could not fake or forge. Hoffman's desperate dealings in the last weeks were an attempt to avoid a final accounting that would uncover the deception. The man who pressed him the hardest, Stephen Christensen, was the first to die. Farnsworth believed that the killing of Kathy Sheets was a desperate and cold-blooded attempt to divert the investigation. 
In February of 1986, Hoffman was charged with the murders of Steve Christensen and Kathy Sheets and with 28 counts of fraud. Two months later, at a lengthy preliminary hearing, the state presented its case against the collector. Eyewitnesses placed Hoffman in the building where Christensen had died. Bomb parts bought by Mike Hansen were shown, in fact, to have been bought by Mark Hoffman. He was tied to forgery after forgery. The defense offered no witnesses. Hoffman pleaded guilty to the second-degree murders of Christensen and Sheets. He admitted that the Salamander letter was a forgery and that the attempted sale of the McClellan collection was a deception. The judge sentenced Hoffman to four concurrent terms of five years to life in the state penitentiary in Draper, Utah, and said he would recommend that Hoffman spend the rest of his life behind bars. As time has gone by, Mark's prison visits from family and friends have grown less and less. He grew up in Utah, and it was later found that he was essentially an atheist by the age of 14, even though he did later serve a mission for the church in England, as well as marrying in the church and having several kids. This week, the new documentary series, Murder Among the Mormons, will be released on Netflix and will further document the case. I've always wondered why a major movie had never been made about this multi-layered case where so much had gone wrong in the tops of the mountains and peaceful streets of Utah. Thank you for listening to Saints and Sinners, True Crime in the History of the West. I'm Chad Mortensen. Mm-hmm.